2: fun topic on this project.
0: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
3: And as a culture, as a country, we are less interested in the whitewashing of history. And that's part of what's gotten us where we are now, because there's the, the misconception that everyone else wasn't here and everyone else is foreigners like no no we've all been here
4: welcome to tangible remnants i'm nikita reed and this is my show where i explore the interconnectedness of architecture preservation sustainability race and gender i'm excited that you're here so let's get into it this episode will be a replay of episode 13 which was a conversation with Monica Rhodes entitled Heritage for the Next Generation.
3: So I'd love to start with talking a little bit about your preservation journey and what got you into the field.
5: You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I always start my conversation at home. Like, You know, just you know, you think about how we all came to preservation at some point. Um, it all starts at home, you know, whether it's an experience or a childhood or growing up in a historic house. Mm-hmm. Even like that, like, you know, a, a lot of our uh, experiences started, start, you know, right where we started. So for me, it started in my hometown of Waco, Texas. So I have two sisters, parents, grandparents, great grandparents. Mm-hmm. I'm a sixth generation Texan. So I've always been rooted in place, beside a, a great uncle and, you know, his family. Uh, I'm, you know, the only person that, out of my family that lives outside of Texas. So I still consider myself very much a Texan. So you will <laughs> definitely catch a a uh, y'all in my email professionally because that's just how I roll. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, thinking about it. So all of the schools that I went to, uh, from elementary school to high school, were named after um, African American men uh,
1: mm-hmm.
5: in, in, uh, from from Waco who did amazing, amazing things. And all of my principals growing up were black women. Uh, so that. Then, you know, trickled down to the type of information and the ways that that information being translated to primarily uh, black and Mexican young folks in Texas. And so we while we did get our Texas textbooks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we also black history and Mexican history was also infused into um, how we how we relate. So when we we're learning about the Civil War, well, naturally, I've always known about the United States color troops or right. I'm talking about World War Two or World War One. You know that lens is is how I um, you know uh, was was raised to approach my work, kind of understanding. Well, you know, everyone didn't have that same experience, and there are people that are left out of the textbooks, and that are, are people left out of the movies, and there are narratives that are not there. And so, if I'm you know thinking about it like I've always known that there's this absence that uh, is around us—absence of people and places and histories—and mm-hmm. so uh, that was you know that that came to me very early and. A lot of my teachers and, and principals were educated uh, uh, at, at HBCUs. And so that then, again, trickled down to a, a little black girl in Texas kind of understanding that the world ain't equal mm-hmm. and it's human, and there are people uh, not on these pages. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm uh, thinking about as, as I'm thinking about my preservation journey is the is the fact that they're in uh, 1916 was a, a a lynching in downtown Waco and that made international news, like so much so that W Du Bois wrote about it, um the Waco horror. So Jesse Washington uh, was his name and he, after doing some family research, um, was the cousin of my great grandmother. Hmm. Uh, and so it's something that you know my family never really talked about, like who wants to talk about their pain. And so you also see um in, in a lot of different communities that you know the individuals and, and the generation who experienced that trauma wanting to distance themselves from that hurt and pain. And and I can't, I can't blame them like that. You know, that's terrorism. And so that experience, um, of course, not being there, but having my grandmother point out the place uh, that it happened and not seeing any acknowledgement of that atrocity, uh, you know, certainly helped turn turn a switch. Like, man, this is, this is real. There are things that are happening that are absent from this landscape. And of course, I didn't have that language to talk about it, but I always knew there was, something missing. Some stories not there. Um, some history's not recognized. Um, and so I you know, took that interest. And um, it's a funny story. I, I uh, actually went to um, black history camp in, in, in middle school. <laughs> There's a black, wait, what? <laughs> black history camp? Say more. <laughs> yeah. So it was at the University of North Texas. And so they were, I'm not sure if they, even still do this or not. Uh, it was a a summer experience that was geared towards uh middle school students to kind of immerse them a little bit more into, into history and then me having always had this interest, uh um, naturally I signed up. You know, <laughs> you know not, not a lot of kids who were interested in going to history camp, but right. I, was, I, was, I was one of them. I was like hey, hey, sign me up for that. That sounds that sounds like a plan. Sounds like a good summer. <laughs> So I uh, um, went to Black History Camp and, you know, uh, you know had an amazing time um, really getting rooted in you know, Thelonious Monk and hearing you know, more about John Coltrane and all these musicians, the civil rights movement. And one of the experiences, um, one of the speakers that I always remember is that the, you know, the very last week of Black History Camp, uh, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth came to, to speak to, to our group about his you know contribution, major contributions in Birmingham and, and nationally and internationally. So that was, you know, again, all of these seeds being planted along the way. Like, you know, just drop, drop, drop. <laughs> um so, you know, I come back home from, from Black History Camp, all fired up <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and just ready to, to, to learn more, like just reading more, you know, watching more, you know, you know, all the all the these Miss Jane Pittman is the uh, poor the best, like you know, I'm just eating, eating all of this stuff. Cabin in the sky, uh, last, last poets, you know, all of all of these things. Gil Scott-Heron, uh, mm-hmm. I'm devouring it, and and you know, so music, culture, history, chewing it all up. So I take that, um, and I take that experience to the University of Tulsa, where I majored in history, and interestingly enough, also um, had a, a focus. So focus, major history, focus in African American history and Chinese history. So those those are my those are my two things. Like I was really interested in uh, dynastic Chinese history. Uh, so uh, you know, all the way up to to Mao is is what I studied, and I took pretty much every class that my university had to offer. And so when it came time to apply to graduate schools, I'm like, man, you know, my, my school at the time didn't teach Mandarin. And so I had, I, even although I had you know read all this history, I'm like, well, I have to make some decisions here. Like, right, you know, this way or this way. It's like you know what. Um, you know, I've always had this interest, um, so I'm, I'm going to pursue, you know, African American history. So I, I go off to Temple University. Uh, it's one of the first universities in the country that granted Ph.D. Uh, degrees in, in Black studies. So uh, yeah, you know, I'm getting on that path. I've been studying this my whole life. You know, right. I'm good. I'm down. Da 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 da. So I, I do my um, my two years to get the master's degree, enroll in the Ph.D. program, get accepted. And uh, so between the summer, um, when I ended my master's degree and, and the uh, summer before I started my Ph.D. program, I, I did an internship with the uh, African-American Museum in Philadelphia
1: mm-hmm.
5: and the uh, PHMC, so the Pennsylvania Museum Commission. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they received a, a grant, uh, Preserve America grant. So focused in on you know, telling these broader, more diverse stories about their communities. And so I spent the summer, um, along with uh, three other colleagues, so another colleague and then a preservationist and a historian,
1: mm-hmm. and
5: we uh, traveled around Pennsylvania the whole summer. Um, so we avoided intentionally uh, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh because there's you know not a, a wealth of information, but there's a lot of uh, information out there about uh, you know Black history in, in those cities. So right, um, you know naturally the, the focus was to let's fill the gap in um where uh there hasn't been much written. So spent the summer in like Meadville, Scranton, Williamsport. Yeah. All, all of those and you know we where they do the uh, the uh minor league baseball uh, mm-hmm. or the sorry, the little league baseball uh world series. So um got a chance to kind of see that place, you know, I I you know one thing I did which is like I grew up playing softball and t balls so from like you know little all the way up <laughs> until mm-hmm. 17. Um, so very very interested in, in Little League and in sports in general. Um, well, so I uh, did that did that internship and and really got jazzed about being able to see something about a community without having to go to the archives. At so that point, like, I was trained as a historian. Like you understand, the, you know where we are by digging into the archives and understanding primary source material and reading the secondary, like all of that. Right. But you know, rolling into town and. You know, Shelby Splane is the name of the preservationist uh, mm-hmm. that uh, was on the team at the time. and Craig Stubman and, you know, Naya were uh, also uh, a part of the team as well. You know, Shelby being able to say like, oh, this is a working class community because XXX and this, 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 and architecture looks like this. I'm like, hey, hey, now, that, that's something that I didn't know about. Like, this, right. is, this is cool being able to, to, you know, look at the built environment and, and tell a little something about the people that were there. Right. Uh, so I was I was hooked um, after that. Mm-hmm. And so from that, I was like, man, I think I need to take a break and, and figure out: do I want to get this another master's degree? Because who does to get two masters, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So I I, um, I worked for the um, the museum and uh, and you know for for about a year, and then the economic crisis hits. That's, so that's like two
1: thousand eight. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Then I um, you know unemployed because there were layoffs across the country. I'm sure you re- remember that. Yep. And uh so I, I as I'm sitting there reading, trying to figure out what I'm you know, what I'm going to do, I start to do a little uh researching around um black sites in, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And you know, that takes me to Eden Cemetery. Um, and so I you know work with them for a little bit, getting learning uh about cemetery documentation and record management and all those types of things. Um, and then it takes me to, um, you know, a colleague who worked in the city at the time, who, who's a good friend now, um, you know, Melissa Jess, which is, you know, she's one of like the premier preservationists in the country, yep. American woman in, in mm-hmm. Atlanta, um, mm-hmm. Aces, brilliant. Um, and so, you know, Melissa then takes some time to me and, uh, you know, she's working on the John Train House at the time, you know, gives me to some, some game, gives me an opportunity to better understand the field. So you know, with, with that, I was like, okay, I, I, all of these sides are pointed in the right direction. Talk mm. to my parents about it. My parents were like, you know, Monica, dude, you gonna live your life. <laughs> live, live your life, you know. They, you know, they, they, to their credit, my parents have raised me to to you know have the the confidence to to be right and wrong, right. Like, you know, you figure it out. Like you go out and you take take the world by storm if that's what you, what you want to do. And so I decided to um, apply to the University of Pennsylvania. First choice, uh, top yep. choice. Yo, yo, yep. got in, met you. <laughs> uh, uh, and it was it was amazing. And one of the reasons why I, I wanted to go to Penn was one, I was very familiar with Philly already. Um, but then also, you know, there are not many preservation programs who both specialize in the conservation science. Uh, as well as that preservation planning and policy side, um, economics of preservation. Like so, when you're, you're talking about a, a, a full suite of services mm-hmm. uh, that you can dip your toe and dabble in, all of those things, you know, Penn is the best place, and Philly is, is the best place to study.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And like, because I was looking at um, going to Columbia, but Columbia told me I had to choose architecture or preservation. First mm-hmm. Penn was like, you can do both and throw in some sustainability if you want to. And I was like, listen, all of this. <laughs>
5: Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, just the fact they're internationally known. Like, you yeah. Know, anywhere that they are doing that, and, and, and more than likely, PN has probably touched that in some way or, or looking to help support that in some way. Yep, yep. exactly. Exactly. So, no, no brainer there. So, with the, PNN, uh, you know, uh, got, uh, with, so at the trust, I um, hadn't been introduced to them yet. So, I applied for this fellowship when I was looking for funding, right, when I was coming into the program. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the Mildred Kalabni Fellowship at the National Trust was available. So naturally applied there. Um, Great, great opportunity to, one, get funding for your preservation, uh, public history studies, but also uh, as a part of that fellowship, you uh, get an opportunity to work on an internship in in the summer between your first and your second year. So uh, that's what I did. I was, uh, you know, grateful to get that uh, scholarship and you know, very happy to be connected with the National Trust. So that summer, I spent time, most of my time in, in Virginia. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I really appreciate and love about the National Trust um, since the you know, very beginning, clear that I wanted an internship that I would, I would grow and learn and be stretched from and then also make an impact. And uh, Rob Newick. Um, yes, love Rob. <laughs> uh, yeah. Great, 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 great person. Yes. Um, constant professional. Um, brilliant as well. Uh, uh, so you know all these people along the way. Uh, very grateful to have known them. So you know Rob was my um, you know manager that that summer, and we worked on a project in Virginia called Fort Monroe. Mm-hmm. So at the time, it wasn't it wasn't a part of the Park Service, but uh, you know the, the National Trust had been working for years to really recognize the role of. Uh, what's, I'm using quotes. Y'all can't see that on the podcast. Like <laughs> heritage. So. You know, you think about the fact that you know black people were property, uh, you know, enslaved, um, and so General Butler at the time uh, issued a decision that said basically, we're not returning uh, these three black men who had come to escape uh, slavery. They came to the fort. We're not going to return them to you, a Confederacy, right. and so we're going to keep them and and have them as contrabands of war. And so this is a contraband camp, and so that that was the decision, and. That decision set the trajectory of how Black folks in mass, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, um, found their freedom by escaping, you know, in behind Confederate lines. So you think in Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Virginia, mm-hmm. um, there were these contraband camps um, throughout the South. Huh? Yeah. So that's a um, so that's a history um, that. Uh, is just read a, a book that uh, explores what those camps were, were like. So Fort Monroe was was one. Camp Nelson, um, also a, a, a national park site now, uh, was one uh, in Kentucky, uh, and you know uh, about about fifty others. Right. Yeah. So Fort Monroe uh, got a chance to go down there and and help think through how to connect the public to these stories. And Rob was like, "Hey, Monica, well, we're trying to." identify these churches that, um, you know, have a direct connection to that story.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: And, uh, so, you know, we did, did some, this did research found out that there were eight of them. And so we wrote a, wrote a letter, wrote a letter on behalf of these eight pastors at these churches to, to go to president Obama, to encourage him, to create a national monument, um, celebrating the role of, uh, you know, the, the contraband heritage that was there.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
5: the fact that these were you know thousands of black folks around uh in and around hampton virginia um so you know naturally shortly after the war they're creating schools and churches and organizations and creating a life and communities that are still in existence today and um you know so it was incredible to be around there it's incredible to be able to work with those pastors to have um, president obama sign that letter and for me that, yeah, that was also a, a, a great experience that I also think was, you know, one of those, another seed being planted, like, man, there is power in collective action and civic engagement and public engagement when it comes to national parks. So that site will now be, you know, interpreted in, in the correct way, in the way that's more inclusive and tells a fuller story about the experiences of all of the people there, and in, in addition to the fact that, you know, Robert e. Lee had constructed and, and, and Jefferson Davis was a prisoner, you know, equally as important is you know the fact that you know sixteen nineteen um, Africans landed there, indentured Service landed there, and it was also the the end of uh, of slavery was still yeah. the low point. So all of these things happen and I'm like, man, there is there is power power in the public, there's power in voices, there's power in the in in our, in our national parks. You know, mm-hmm. that that story, that place will will be there long after you know we close our eyes for the last time. Right. Mm-hmm. And part of that legacy I'm you know really, really proud
4: of. We're gonna take a quick break from the show and we'll be right back. Are you a college student who'd like to buy me coffee to pick my brain? Why well, don't I really like coffee? So how about a tall caramel apple spice instead? And how about we make it virtual? One of the reasons I started this podcast was to help design students, particularly women and people of color, to feel less alone in their studies and to see that there are people who look like them who have always been impacting the built environment. Since I've started the podcast, a number of students have reached out via social media, and we've set up times to chat about whatever was on their mind at the time. And as much as I have loved connecting with the various students that I've met so far, there's just not enough hours in the day to connect with everyone. So I figured I'd experiment with a different format and see how it goes. Periodically, I'll offer an AMA chat session and make space for 10 to 15 students to join me for an hour. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything, for those of you who are wondering. So if you're a student interested in meeting a few other students from around the country and interested in asking me questions about the profession, what to look for in your grad school, starting a business, how to deal with imposter syndrome, or just life in general, head over to my website, NikitaReed.com forward slash AMA to learn more. I look forward to chatting with you.
2: Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything. From reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media.
4: Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries.
2: Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left
4: out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work, and obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of, like, dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, yes. just taking it day by day, yes. but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century.
2: From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform.
4: Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. And now let's get back to the show.
5: I uh, took that experience, went back to, to Penn. I also did an international internship that summer. That was a busy summer. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in, you know, in, in Montenegro. And so I went went back to Penn, you know, finished up. What did I do? I, I started consulting. So the National Trust also has a program that they did at the time uh, with American Express called Partners in Preservation. Mm-hmm. So I was project manager for the D.C. Uh, Partners in Preservation. It's an amazing program. If you, you think about it, one of the challenges with, you know, historic sites is they don't do the best job in, in marketing themselves. And so this was both a a, a way for them to, build capacity around marketing
1: uh,
5: and uh, create a competition. So now you have the public voting in on, you know, what, what site is the, is the, you know, should get this, get this funding from American Express. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea. Uh, So got a chance to do the project management for that. And that was a million dollar grant program. Uh, And then shortly after that, the the national trust, my my consulting uh, with the PIP was over, Went to to came back to and said, "Hey, Monica, we have this idea about a program. Uh, really hadn't done it before, but we really want to create this volunteer engagement uh, opportunity for for young people around the country." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. when I walked into the National Trust, there were you know, boxes of T-shirts and the name of the program, and uh-huh. that was it. If <laughs> 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 you can imagine, like uh, let's cut the lights on boxes. <laughs> And then the name, like, okay, mm-hmm. what you, what do you want what you going to do with it? Ah, love it. It's like, there you go. Good luck. Like, <laughs> blessings, uh, blessings to you. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, uh, at the time, you know, Terry Rich was the chief marketing officer and, you know, to his credit, he was like, Monica, this is hands off. Like, whatever you make this program, like you'll have the support, but you'll know, treat this like you treat your consulting opportunity. So you check in, you do this, but you know, re, you know, swing for the fence on this. One. <clears throat> and so I, I, I did. Uh, and it was great. So one of my first calls that I made, I remember when they were like, "Hey, we, want, we see this is the national program. We going to scale this up quickly and mm-hmm. have our blessings to do what you need to do to make it happen. I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to call in the, the big dog. On this. So I called Mary means um, and, you know, Mary um, created the, the national main street program. She did this in the seventies time, you know, before Mary, you know, the trust hadn't really thought about the, uh, you know, economic opportunities that are in, embodied in our, our you know, uh, our historic commercial corridors. And so um, uh, she, along with her team, created the National Main Streets Program, which is thousands of communities right now. And so when I, when I thought about the legacy of Mary and, and, and the great work that Main Street continues to do until this day. Like I have to, I have to talk to someone who's been able to bo- operate both inside a model and as well as outside the model. Right. Room. So I called Mary, we chopped it up for a little bit. She, and she was like, hey, you got to do this, making sure you do this. Mm-hmm. You know, think about, you know, developing the framework here, all of that. Um, you know, talk to talk to Rob, you know, talk to Melissa Jess, you know, mm-hmm. talk to Tanya, talk to Jackie Johnson, talk to Brent Legg. Like right. It was, it was, this was a full court. After a full court press, um, talk to people at the National Park Service. Um, you know, Stephanie Toothman, talk to um, Bob Stanton. Like, like, how how can we do this? So I'm I'm pulling from all of the people that I've met along the way in internships and, and different experiences to mm-hmm. figure out how to really stand this up. So yes, I like was the founding director of this Hope Crew program, but this was a a result of preservationists thinking deeply about. What was done right? What was done wrong? And how we can move forward from there? Um, I even talked to the trades, you know, the Preservation Trades Network, and mm-hmm. David Gibney's and Jim Turner's, like all these people, just doing it right. Collective right. national effort. <laughs> um, and so we, you know, I say we because, it, again, it was it was me and you know hundreds of organizations, thousands of people who were impacted. Um, by this work and, and millions, if you think about the work that we did at the National Park Service, mm-hmm. um, and and so we, you know, partnered with an organization that's based in D.C. called the Core Network, who has you know a roster of over a hundred youth and conservation cores to kind of build this program out. You think about you know what, what the trust did, did well and where the gaps were in, in outreach, and that was young people and diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, it was a natural marriage to kind of think about well, let's partner with some with an organization that does this well. And they, and they were it. And so fast forward, um, you know, five years later with, with the program, we had done over 165 projects, had trained and paid like 700 young people and veterans. There's another model of Hope Crew uh, at the time, which was a volunteer model. There were thousands of people who had participated in Cemetery Headstone uh, cleaning days and documentation days and restoration projects in their communities. Because you think about the fact that what the challenge has really been is that we're not talking to enough people about our work. Like, right. for preservation, there are not many people who know what, what you really do. Right. Um, and so a part of that, you know, we, we have to point the finger back at ourselves. We're not doing the best job at reaching out and connecting to people, mm-hmm. marketing um, the work that we do, which is central to who we are as about as, as like heritage. You know, we are trained to be heritage. Prof- we are heritage professionals. Right. Know? How symbolic that is to our country. And how important it is to all communities that you know. I've worked in some of the most conservative uh, places in our country. I have been on conservative talk shows, radio shows, mm-hmm. and and I've been on you know I've been on some of the most you know liberal talk talk shows or, or radio shows and talked to some of the people who are you know far left and far right. And the one thing that brings them together is the fact that. Everyone is committed to preserving what they think their heritage is and, and, and passing it on to a next generation. So yep. every, person, every person, I don't care if you are in you know, the head of park service or if you're standing on the corner doing what you're doing on there. Right. I've talked to people from all over the country, all walks of life, and it, there's, a, there's a commonality that we, we all have a sh- you know, shared heritage together and all are invested and ensuring that we have something to pass on to the next generation, and so that was the, the point of that program, or uh, you know, the, the volunteer side of it. It's like now we are bringing a sweat equity and giving people something to do that have a positive impact on their communities. And then the same goes for the uh, the fact for that uh, touching history, the preservation and practice mm-hmm. you know, that that leveraged the Hope Crew model to work with historically black colleges and universities. So in addition to one, you know, the trades profession being primarily older. Um, primarily white, primarily male, was right. the, one of the things that the Hope crew program disrupted is like more young women, more people of color, more young people are right. are going to help and get these trade skills with the volunteers, like you know from from eight to eighty were participating in these programs. And then you also thinking about thinking about inclusion, it's not only you know, racial diversity, but it was uh, socioeconomic diversity. It was, you know, there were an equal mix of uh, women and men. Every project that I planned that was a volunteer project always had a plan for someone who um, was was deaf or hard of hearing, or they came up in a a wheelchair. So, however, you came to a Hope Crew project at the time, there was something there for you to participate. Because if it's, if we're really democratizing this thing, that means there's a room, there's room, and there should be room for everyone at the preservation table. And And that's what I did. And then with the touching history and preservation practice, it's like, okay, well, you know, and so we you're democratizing it, we you know, um, switching up the trades professional and, and disrupting that or adding adding to, to that conversation. Well we we need um more black architects. And so naturally it came to let's let's create a program um, that focused in on creating a pipeline of young students enrolled in the architecture programs, HBCUs into preservation. Yeah. And and Nikita, I know you're a part of that. I
3: am. I am. And I'm so glad that um, you were involved with creating it because it's been really fascinating working with students who are undergrads going through their architecture education, particularly Black students at HBCUs, helping them understand the importance of preservation and how it fits and how it really is impactful and for everyone. And it's it's really fun. Right now, uh, the current cohort is uh, five students from Tuskegee. And so me and another architect out of Atlanta are working with them we'll be probably through, I think, July is when the course is up, but it's, it's been really fascinating and fun. And also I'm like, oh, dang, I'm getting older because I'm like, what, what are these kids talking about, right? So it's like, it's, it's keeping me young. I appreciate it.
5: (laughs) But it brings all, but it's all, yeah, absolutely. Um, Age, man. Age. Yeah. Right. These years are flying. They really are. And so then, with the the work that you've been doing,
3: and like, and I love talking talking to you and hearing kind of the lineage and all of the seeds that have been dropped over the course of your life, and I, we're gonna talk more about Black History Camp offline. But that's amazing. Um,
5: <laughs> well, but just, the last thing I'll say is though, so one of yeah. the full full circle moments is so remember I said in Black History Camp we heard you know I got to meet and hear Fred Shuttlesworth talk. Yeah. So one of the projects I planned um, before I left, uh, you know, the National Trust and moved to the National Park Foundation was to uh, do a Hope Crew project at the place where he lived in Birmingham, right across the, the, the street from the church where he preached, and all of all of that. So, it, you got a chance to plant that seed in my in, in middle school years and then on the back end, twenty-something years later, had a chance to restore the windows of his home. Wow! After, um, as a part of a program, I helped build out that's dope. <laughs> that's, right, that's dope. So then one of the other um,
3: sites I want to talk about was Hinchcliffe Stadium. Talk a little bit about that process because I know that was another volunteer effort on the Hope Crew side and that just had a huge impact.
5: Yeah so with henchlift, so that that was a an effort by the, the National Trust for Historic Preservation's National Treasures Program which uh, means that they you know identified a site that were was in endangered and uh, needed it, it needed some preservation assistance. So whether it was um, marketing, a preservation plan, it needed protection in some level of, of form. I'm not articulating uh, the the program really well. So forgive me, National Trust for. <laughs> <clears throat> but the but the treasures program was a, a, a national effort to ensure that the places that are historically significant receive the level of attention and funding that are necess- that's necessary. Mm-hmm. And so Hinchlift Stadium was one of those projects. And uh so the project manager for that at the time was uh, was Brent Liggs and um you know Jessica Pumphrey, who was on the, the media side, was the uh, was also on the team. And when Brent and um and the marketing division came together, we're talking about well, how can we do some community, you know, uh, you know, volunteer day. Mm-hmm. And at that at that point, you know, Hope Crew was still not a thing. Like it was okay. know, one project. This was 2014. Still planning out. Like, ah oh, man, what I'm gonna do? I have <laughs> and I have all these t-shirts. I have to push.
1: <laughs>
5: I box the t-shirt and fill the name of a program. Right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, they're like, okay, we'll bring, we'll get 50 people to pick up trash that day. I'm like, okay, cool, big people picking up trash. And so, um, so we're you know thinking about that and planning for that. And then um, a week or two after we had committed to the idea of the fifty people picking up trash, the the, the uh, Patterson, the city of Patterson, we also are, you know planning with the project team, and the, you know, in the projects in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, they, they called and said, "Hey, we picked up the trash. We were inspired about the National Trust paying attention to us like this, and we want to just pick the trash up." I was like, "Well, <laughs> <laughs> I still got these shirts over here, okay." <laughs> and so so brit and Jessica and I like put our put our hands together. We're like, okay, well, I guess now we gotta have to figure out well what's well, what's the next thing? And and so um you know, you, you know, the there were a whole bunch of people at the National Trust trying to figure out like well, what, what are we gonna do to have an impact, set this uh to we have this program here, this National Trust program, we gotta do something. And we yeah. got this you know, great program called Hope Crew that you know we you know know what to do with it. So um people picking up trash, then turned into, okay, well, maybe we can do like 100 people um paint painting something, like painting, you know, getting some paint from Balspar and doing all that. Mm-hmm. So we started talking to the city of Patterson and, and, and congressman office and a uh, few community groups and a paint company and all of those things. And then, um, you know, soon after, a few weeks later, it was, it was like 300 people. Like, okay, you know, this is really it's okay. really going a lot of interest, you know. It's, it's the city of Patterson is really pushing this. The mayor's behind it. We had talked to the you know to city to the city council and leadership. And then three hundred then grew to like five fifty. Okay, well this is this is big now. <laughs> so let's uh let's let's up that order that paint order to uh, to to Valspar and get the the the, the right amount of paint because we, we got a we got a project on hand. Right. And it came out to be like seven hundred people. Oh my That's gosh. Over seven hundred people that day and this was the Again, this was a um, at the time it was owned by the city of Patterson. Hence, stadium has been largely abandoned, graffiti in the um, all in the in the stadium. It was a Negro Baseball League stadium that had mm-hmm. been, again like abandoned, and folks from different ages had like different memories of it. And I found this out while doing you know the the, the research on how to, to to really do some deep community engagement here. So folks like, yeah, I remember high you know graduating from high school there. People we in like their forties. Mm-hmm. Um, Graduate from high school there but you know it's it's closed abandoned like who you know what's what's going on who wants to to do that right um and then and then to the people the teenagers like well i don't really know much about the stadium never heard of it at all i didn't know you know we had a liberal league baseball stadium they had never been in it mm-hmm. and so the, the thing is so you know as these numbers are ticking up on the registration i'm so I also had like the very other first like the the, the trades training part of it where you know uh, young people were paid to to learn how to do a skill and that was happening at Shenandoah uh, National Park at the same time. I'm planning to figure out what I'm gonna do with 700 people, <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, well, how can I think through how to one organize these volunteers, but then two understand that they are working in a Negro baseball baseball stadium, right? So I decided to organize them based on the teams. Were, who, who played at the stadium? That's amazing. Yeah, so it's like okay, it's like okay, the New York Black Yankees. This will be a team, and then the New York Eagles will be a team, and then the Black Cubans will be a team. And so uh, we had a local artist draw the the logos of the team and, and um, all around. So we had like five different paint stations,
1: mm-hmm. um,
5: and then so the first, you know, the two there were two phases. So the first phase would come in, put the primer on. Second phase would come in and paint. Right, gotcha. Um, and so that day was a, a big day. Uh, I'll say the day before, I remember it snowed. Uh, oh. and we, didn't have, uh, oh. we didn't have a backup. There was not a <laughs> there was not a rain date. <laughs> no snow date. So we we were but I'm, so I'm up. You know, you know how you are at the, at the at the beginning of projects. Like I didn't sleep really the night before, so I'm up at three o'clock in the morning still mm-hmm. organizing things, moving things, making sure this is going on, uh, the insurance stuff taking care of, it, mm-hmm. forum side, everything was. Planning, right? Right. Um, but it went off without a hitch. It, it really did. That day we had the uh, National Historic Landmark Ceremony. It was uh, getting all those young people there, primarily Black and Latino young folks. They were able to get that stadium painted in like five hours. The whole stadium. The whole stadium. That is impressive. The whole stadium. The, there's a local local paint company uh, volunteered in Patterson to be able to, to help um, uh, do that. Alpine paint is the name. I'm still... I still talk to them to this day. They were clutch. They were ensuring that you know people were on task, painting properly, painting safely, no running. We had the areas that were sectioned off. They made sure that they were not going over there. Brilliant! Like we had the bookmobile. It was National Bookmobile Day. Um, there were uh, small racing cars, box cars that mm-hmm. were there because that was also so it had also a history of like being a race car track at some time. And so a guy brought out these beautiful cars. So they were there. So the, so the students got a chance to interact with them. We had DJ, we had the barbecue pit going. Wow, it was, it was a full day. That honestly, there was so much planning to go. It was like I have to look at the pictures to remember. Right, you know? <laughs> right. But it was amazingly done. And again, when I think about the lessons that I learned um, at you know Fort Monroe down in Hampton and working with the with with the the, the public and, the, and voices and collective action this further solidified like man there is, is power in all of this is power in preservation is power in people and what we can do together if we put our heads together and now Henchler Stadium is is one of the only Negro League baseball stadiums included in the boundary of the National Park Service so the the the, the National Park expanded the boundary of Great Falls mm-hmm. and so now that that park that that place is is the part of the park service
3: oh my monica so that blows my mind and is amazing and also it seems like I'm even more inspired just Hearing that story again and hearing it from the different angles. And just, I, I didn't realize that the, um, the boundary had been expanded and so like being able to really make it more inclusive. And so it wasn't just a one-off community project that, okay, they painted something and now that's it. Like, it's still expanding.
5: Girl, listen. Yes. <laughs> and then again, again, I, I gotta say that, that there's, there's still that plan. Like if anyone would walked up or uh, came up in a wheelchair there still would have been an opportunity for them to participate because it's built into how I plan projects. Yeah. I love that. And so from there, so all the
3: amazing work that you did with Hope Crew, get rid of them um, (laughs) t-shirts.
1: For real, for
3: real. Expanding and training more. So then um, talk a little bit more. I know that you've transitioned now and you're at the National Parks Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk a little bit more about how you're thinking of economics and fundraising because as we both know nothing happens um in preservation without money Mm -hmm. and being able to get funds to projects has been something that is a struggle on multiple levels so i'd love to talk a little bit more about your position and what you're doing there now
5: yeah and you know you hit the hit the nail on the head um so with you know with the Hope crew and, and and running that primarily up until like the last year solo dolo Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized that I need to sharpen my chops in philanthropy and being able to to navigate this world and do more fundraising around this to be as as, as effective as possible because nothing happens without right. it, nothing. Right. And so, you know, the National Park Foundation was an organization that I had been keeping my eye on for some time. I mean, they had just completed at the time over a half a million uh, dollars for the, the the centennial. They had raised that. There was their goal and they had exceeded their goal and they had this amazing event at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it, and it my answer, like, okay. So organizations, they, they, they do it, they do it, they do it, they do it. Um, they, you know, they had brought out some, some heavy hitters. I'm like, okay, I, I, I like where this is going. They mm-hmm. are focused in on this. Um, at the time, I knew they had the um, African-American Experience Fund. They had the American Latino Heritage Fund. I knew that they had helped establish by fundraising uh, the colonel charles young buffalo soldiers you know national park in uh in ohio so i knew that they were establishing parks and preserving places and doing all of this and again mm-hmm. thinking about social impact and collective action where where else where does that happen around preservation at the large scale at the largest scale figure other than the national park service right so right. Uh, you know I, I had at that point had i had drank the kool-aid and i'm like okay <laughs> national Park parks so where is that i had understood you know understand the budget they had a good network of people, and so I wanted to explore an opportunity or a way to have an impact on the National Park Service as well. And so, you know, raising money was a a, a natural fit. Makes sense. So I went over to the to the Park Foundation. I'm having an amazing time there. They are in the process of of relaunching uh, the African American Experience Fund. That that fund turns uh, twenty years old this year, mm-hmm. uh, and so that is a fund that's uh, specifically focused in on preserving and protecting sites that tell a more broader story about the parks um, that interpret African-American culture um, and and history. So everything from uh, Brown B Board Education to Nicodemus, which is a historic black town that the Park Service manages, um, to Little Rock, to, you know, I mean, you you name it. Um, So both those sites as well as expanding stories within sites like Yellowstone or Mm -hmm. telling a broader story around the Buffalo Soldiers. And so I naturally wanted to to be able to 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 have an impact there and very proud of that work there and then with the uh, American Latino Heritage uh, Fund, uh, they helped establish Cesar Chavez National Monument, which is great and so you know being able to bring the private philanthropic support to the public vis-a-vis the national Park service is an incredible opportunity and it has inspired me to want to, to, to do more in that area. And so we have also launched the Women in Parks Initiative. So that was launched in 2020 to commemorate the 100 years that, you know, women, specifically white women, got the got the right to vote. Right. Um, again, you know, because the Park Foundation is focusing on telling these intersectional stories, they're also looking at the role of African-American women in that. So even if they, you know, didn't necessarily get the right to vote without fear of harassment until 1965, they still were able able to to weave those stories in about the Black Women's Club movement and what that looked like, or Mm -hmm. Latinas and their role in uh, focusing in on ensuring that they also have the right to vote as well. So this intersectionality is up front and center at the uh, National Park Foundation. I'm very proud to be able to to work on that and support that. Um, And in addition to that, the National Park Foundation also helped Established the Merrily Evers National Monument. Um, oh. That, that was established late last year. Um, I missed that. That's fantastic. Yep. Yeah. And so we um, we were able to provide some very early funds in that conversation as we're thinking about the donation that came from Tumulu College. Um, you know, that came from NPF. And that was something that, again, when you think about focusing in on not only giving lip service to these things, but bringing that private philanthropy to have a direct impact on these national parks is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it with the fact that uh, the National Park Foundation was front and center in bringing Robert Smith uh, and Two Foundation to help purchase the the life and birth home of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, down in in um, in Atlanta. So mm-hmm. the, you know, so now there's a, a the, the family home is now a new part of both um, Martin Luther King's story, but you know, more importantly, also tells the story of, you know, Coretta Scott King and the work that she did to ensure that Dr. King's legacy was was something that we could re- remember and experience by helping to establish that park in the first place. So just over the moon and being excited about this, also working with like the Latino Heritage Fund, which is underway already and has been relaunched. We have a project happening down in San Antonio right now, uh, working with the American Youth Works and Texas Conservation Corps. Uh, Mission Heritage Partners and the Park Service and NPF provided the funding to be able for or young four cultural landscape apprentices to restore the acequias, which is a historic irrigation system throughout the park. They're they're working down there right now and being paid by private philanthropic dollars. And so those are the those are the types of things where we think about scale and impact, having a philanthropic partner front and center and fully committed to preserving these stories. Telling these stories in a more cohesive, beautifully fuller, richer way that, that values cultural heritage and cultural difference and not just focusing in on the parks that tell a certain type of story. It's just not the Washington Monument. It's the Washington Monument plus Medgram earlier. Early. It's right. also helping Yellowstone National Park, which is beautiful and amazing, but also helping to raise the funds to restore Pullman National Monument that tells the story of, of the Pullman Porters. So it's that both end, and and yeah. we have you know the funding plus the congressional appropriations. So they they get that you know funding from the government. They're able to leverage both this private philanthropy with some park service dollars and congressional appropriations. Well, now we're talking about stacking funding and stacking money and bigger impact. And right. it's, it's the shorter word is dope. It's <laughs> it's dope to be able to say like, man, the work that's happening now will will live beyond us it will be something that people's grandkids can enjoy, great great grandkids can enjoy. And as our country gets, you know, more diverse, about in 2050, like, you know, you know, half of the population will have melanin in their skin, right? So this is this is where we're headed. Like we're planning for folks that are in elementary school right now. So but by the time they're our age, this conversation about like, ah, we gotta make sure that this people are recognized. We got to make sure we're preserving this, it won't be a conversation if we do our jobs right. 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 We are are preparing the world and these historic sites and the National Park Service and preservation at large. We are preparing for the next 30 years right now. And, you know, Nikita, I'm I'm excited to be able to work with folks like you. I'm excited to be able to work for organizations like the National Park Foundation and have worked for, you know, the National Trust. You know, all of those organizations and, and, and people like us are fully committed to ensuring that we are building the infrastructure or that, that next generation that's coming. So exactly. The
3: for exactly. And the, this is one of the reasons why I love talking to you because I feel like we're such kindred spirits and understand how everything is interconnected. And it's one of those things where we need to be able to tell stories, keep, keep people getting interested in it. Cause it's such an amazing field that touches so many different things. It's almost kind of like a ninja. Cause it's like, you don't, like, you don't even think preservation is involved with that. They're like, nope, that that's connected to that too. And the economics of it, and the built heritage of it, what's the memory, what's history, what's heritage, what's passed on, like it's all connected
5: yeah. uh-huh. all, all 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 connected it really I'm, is. It's also yeah, uh, creating partnerships with you know historically black uh fraternities and sororities, I mean, their latest one is with zeta Zeta Phi Beta sorority incorporated uh, <laughs> so they are they are um you know making these connections to so, you know Magdalena Walker. Um, was a member, member of Zeta Phi Beta, and so you know they're signing agreements to formalize partnerships. It's like one thing is saying like, "Oh, we know about the Zetas, we know about the Deltas, or the Alphas," but they have these formal relationships in, right. in place through their partnership office that also, you know, uh, demonstrate that they are focused in on intentionally bringing everybody along uh, with them as they move towards a more inclusive park service and a more inclusive country that that are that are that are holding these stories. And are in, in this um, beautiful, brilliant, diverse, shared heritage. Right.
3: And one of the things that I love about it is that it's not like it's a, it's an uncovering almost because it's not like we're making up stories or it's more of a, these are the stories that have been forgotten, purposefully left out, but like, and as a culture, as a country, we are less interested in the whitewashing of history. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what's gotten us to where we are now because there's the, you know, the misconception that everyone else wasn't here and everyone else is foreigners like no no we've all been here it's just our stories haven't been told so I love the fact that preservation is really stepping in to that conversation and being like well look here here's evidence here's the proof that these people were here and here's the culture here's the traditions here's why things have happened how they are so I love all this
5: It makes us better. I think being having honest conversations about who we really are. Yes, it it only the most democratic thing I think that we could do.
3: I agree, one hundred percent. I'll make sure to include a bunch of show notes because this has been a history lesson with so many fantastic sites and images and things like that. So I'll make sure to put all these in the show notes and on Instagram, Facebook, all those good places.
5: Yeah, yeah. uh, you You can. Find me on the internet uh, at Mo Roads. Uh, so that's my um, my handle on the Twitter mm-hmm. uh, and on the Instagram and uh, on LinkedIn. It's just Monica Roads. And then um, you know website coming soon. Thank you so much
4: for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode show notes special thank you to sarah gilberg for letting me use snippets from her song fireflies if you haven't already be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and now that tangible remnant is part of the gable media network you can listen and subscribe to all the network partner content at gablemedia.com that's g-a-b-l media.com until next time Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling an inclusive history.
1: I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them and setting them free Honey, that's what you do That's what you do to me
3: I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the shit out of me.